Good afternoon. You are listening to Resonance 104.4 FM and this is Art Then and Now with me, your host, Anna Gammons. This is the show where we explore art from the past and art from the present to understand how we as humans express ourselves through time. Our theme this week is masculinity and I had the pleasure of interviewing Jeremy Mulvey, artist and lecturer from Cambridge, who has used art and literature to explore the themes of gender construction. But before that, I'm going to take you all way, way back to the Renaissance and look at Michelangelo's sculpture of David as an expression of male gender identity. Michelangelo's David has been understood as a symbol for many things, including more traditional and idealised masculinity. But I want to preface this analysis by stating that In my opinion, the social constructions of masculine and feminine are completely separate from what I understand as gender construction. To that, I mean that the label of masculine does not necessarily, in my opinion, apply to men and the feminine to women. But I am looking at Michelangelo's sculpture as a product of its context in the 16th century. So I'm trying not to impose my own thinking on this historical depiction, but rather looking at what it could have meant for contemporary male identity. So, David, well, the sculpture was created between 1501 and 1504 by artist Michelangelo. The sculpture is 5.17 metres or 17 feet tall. It is absolutely huge and its home is in Florence, Italy at the Galleria dell'Accademia. Sorry, I did not say that very well at all. Sorry, any Italians listening. Um, I went to see it actually with my family and my advice is if you want to go and see it, bring lots of water because you are going to be queuing for hours outside. But it is well worth it. I was in complete awe when I got to see it. Um, So it's carved out of one single block of marble and this was incredibly rare to find a block that was so perfect with no fault lines or impurities. Um, so Michelangelo actually went to the quarry in himself in Carrara in Tuscany to try and source out what he was going to decide to make his beautiful sculpture out of. So he found this marble himself. So it depicts the biblical story of David and Goliath, found in book one of Samuel. Uh, David, as a teenage boy, was given the task of defeating the giant Goliath. But since he was much smaller than the giant, he would need to use his intellect to hatch a plan. And eventually he settled on a slingshot as a weapon of his choice, as well as his kind of intelligence and this plan that he'd hatched as well. So this sculpture isn't really about brute force. And you can sort of see David's face displays this concentration of his of him thinking through his plan of attack but it's about intelligence which is kind of gives this sculpture a sense of elevation and we can understand perhaps the importance of intellect in, in the making of a successful war hero in this sculpture and perhaps even what contemporary men in power prided themselves on as well. So this sculpture, if we understand it to be about righteousness and glory, then it also can act as a case study for what was seen as important at the time and how the representation of the masculine can be a vehicle of presenting that. So there's an interesting crossover with Michelangelo between art and science in his work of David. It's so hard to create the impression of blood and skin and general tender and lifelike human form out of solid hard rock. But Michelangelo has managed to give life to the marble in his depiction of muscles and the veins. We can almost see the tension in his contrapposto pose and the blood pumping through his veins as his body is mentally and physically preparing for war. 
But this is no accident that this is such an accurate portrayal of the human anatomy. Michelangelo spent much of his time studying the human body and and credited much of his success as an artist to the scientific study of anatomy. But this was also a time where the anatomy wasn't really widely understood by contemporaries. And so this is not only an idealised depiction of the male form, but it's anatomically accurate and incredibly rare for its time. But we cannot help as well but see David's rippling muscles as a symbol of his traditional masculinity in this sculpture. They sort of convey the strength and power, and this depiction very much fits into a narrative where we've seen heroic male forms and other allegorical representations of gods and biblical characters portrayed in this same way, that strength and muscles and power equals masculinity and that is kind of what we're talking about today so why is it so big well it is three times the size of the average human man as I said absolutely worth seeing I was in awe when I was looking up at it Um, but the statue kind of harks back to the ancient Roman allegorical statues that were visual representations of the dominance and power of those civilizations and many have suggested that this sculpture is actually a metaphor for the city of Florence and just as Florence was a large part of the overall identity of Italy, for example, with its trade and economy, so too was this statue representation of Florentine identity. And at the time, Florence was actually a symbol of democracy and was standing against the political tyranny that was going on in the rest of Italy. So if we see this as a sort of personification of Florence, as it were, as a city, then the bigger the sculpture, the more powerful and the more respect it commanded. So here we can see that Michelangelo and eventually the city of Florence, who commissioned this work, have used the male form as a symbol of freedom, democracy and provincial power. So why is he naked? Well, there are a few reasons for this. Um, And his nudity is actually a really large part of the discussion because the biblical story denotes that David fought Goliath without armour and it doesn't specifically say that he was naked. But this kind of offered Michelangelo a way to showcase his unparalleled understanding of the human form. And also he wanted this piece to be a symbol of the triumphs of man. So he displayed man in all his glory and the distinguishing feature of his manhood in quotes is proudly on display along with the glorious definition of these muscles and veins but some have actually pointed out that the size of David's genitals and perhaps on the smaller side calling into question his manhood but the problem with that interpretation is that it only really works through our modern day lens where we have come to sort of misunderstand the bigger the sex organ the more manly the man but in the past bigger genitals bigger genitals were seen as somewhat brutish and vulgar and many Greek and Roman statues of which this one was modelled against actually scaled down the symbols of manhood as a way to elevate the sculpture um, beyond the lusts of mere mortals so they're presenting man but elevating him above kind of these carnal pleasures and things like that so I've come to kind of see this piece as a bit of a coming age story this sculpture because David takes on Goliath when nobody else would. So in a sense, it's kind of a coming-of-age story for David about proving his manhood in battle. And many statues before Michelangelo of the same story, so portraying David and Goliath and the biblical story, actually show him 
after he's defeated the giant um, with his head by the feet. So he's kind of cut off the head of the giant and it's sitting below his feet. But Michelangelo went very much against this expectation and depicted David before the battle. So I've kind of come to see the sculpture not only about Michelangelo presenting a hero to the world, but about him presenting himself to the world as a confident artist with lots to prove, both men looking ferociously towards their future and the challenges ahead. Remember that Michelangelo was only 26 years old and relatively unknown at the time, so this is possibly a projection of how he would like the world to see him, his identity as an artist and potentially even as a man. And Michelangelo has kind of um, about him understanding himself in the world. So masculinity in this sculpture is so heavily tied up with identity and is perhaps synonymous with issues of intellect, political prowess, dominance and intelligence. And David in all of his masculine glory is presented as the personification of good triumphing over evil. The concept of masculinity here achieves an overall sense of righteousness. Good afternoon, you are listening to Resonance 104.4 FM and this is Art Then and Now. Hopefully you enjoyed my interpretation of Michelangelo's presentation of masculinity in relation to identity in the 16th century. Now I had a great time talking to my guest, artist and lecturer Jeremy Mulvey, who talks about his past and present ideas on gender identity. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed talking to him yourself and kind of your practice yeah my name's Jeremy Mulvey and um, I'm an artist living in Cambridge we're in my studio my practice mainly is uh, in oil paints oil paintings I yeah. chose to do art when I was in the sixth form I was doing sort of English history and art right and then I I wanted to go to art school that seemed to be like a good place to be mm-hmm. That was difficult at times, but I found it was a great place. I loved it mm. in many ways. Where did uh, you where did you go again? Kingston, Kingston. Polytechnic, as right. it was now, right, Kingston right. University, Kingston School of Art. Yeah. And then I um, I was lucky to get a British Council travelling scholarship to Spain for two years, where I had um, the time to paint and read a lot, mm. and got really into. Um, Spanish art, particularly Velasquez and Goya. I just was amazed by all these pictures, and I, I, I liked art history a lot. But I didn't really get in touch with the gallery, so when I came home, I decided to go into teaching for to, to make a living. Right. And then I did... Um, uh, I, I really liked my... You know, the guy said, I'll do a bit of art history for the A-level. I don't want to do that. So I did that, and mm. I thought, wow, this is really interesting, talking about paintings. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'll go off and do uh, an MA in art history, which I loved. Right, okay. And then in the 1990s, uh, you know, I, I'd i been a tutor in art schools for a number of years and was in Westminster University. I had some success uh, yeah. with a research group, male identity group. Then yeah. I sort of uh, had five years of running the course and I wanted to sort of step on out of that and went to three days a week, four days a week, and and sort of set up Mm. my own studio. When I got back into painting, I was very interested in the movements in painting since the 1970s, which got, you know, issue-based. Let's get involved with issues of social issues. The psychology of it, yeah. Yeah, and the psychology. 
Yeah. You mentioned the idea of copying as sort of a way to identify um, your unique take on a piece of artwork, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. And it was, it came from a Picasso's idea that copying yeah. allows yeah. you to be original in itself sure. as a paradox. Sure. Well, yes. I mean, I um, I've been fascinated at this idea myself, and uh, I I've run a, a number of copying workshops at the Fitzwilliam Museum, right. connected with the exhibitions that they've had. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I find fascinating is that um, radical artists like Degas and Picasso mm. did a large amount of copying, exploring the paintings of others. Mm. And, um, you know, Picasso said, we're most original when we're copying the work of others. In copying the work of others that we notice the decisions that we yeah. would have wanted to take. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that we notice how we... Oh, that's something I would do. That's mm -hmm. something I wouldn't do. I remember I was copying a Poussin of some funeral. And I, th and I painted the red. And I realised how he'd just done an extremely pure red colour, hardly modulated by tone and yeah. shadow. And I thought, wow, that's why that painting mm. works. So it's almost as though in yeah. copying, yeah. we um, explore the way the picture's made. We enter into the mm -hmm. artist's mind. It's almost as though we put our hand yeah. underneath the surface of the painting and we sort of touch the yeah. process. Yes. I can't say it any better than that. What we get when we're doing a painting, we're grappling with two different things. We're grappling with the style that we choose to do the painting in and the subject matter. Yeah, yeah. You take away one of those variables, i.e. the subject matter, yeah. you can very easily do a comparison where if you compare the piece you're copying and your piece, you minus one from the other, the difference between the paintings is you. In March 1993, you wrote an essay on the theme of masculinity. Yes, yes. But as part of an exhibition you were creating at Westminster University, um, and it was like a response to kind of gender dynamics and the social construct of masculinity. I found it fascinating, but also incredibly applicable to today's society. Um, I would love you to give, can you give a brief overview of that essay? Because yeah, yeah. I think that's, no, it's that's so important. That's good. I mean, to say um, Westminster University was a great place to have these debates and battles because mm -hmm. it was in London, there was, it was sort of connected with lots of the identity politics that was developing yeah. and, we, and we set up the fine art degree in a faculty where there was lots of expertise about film and film theory and photography and photography theory yeah. and also media studies had a, a sort of a seminal group there it's like a hub of it was of a hub ideas you know. yeah so there was a uh, a women's group in the university called cutting edge that was sort mm -hmm. of pursuing the agenda of uh, feminism and the women's movement in, in the professional context of the mm. university they were making art which was very much um, issue based about uh, exploring the possibilities of feminism and, and what women could do and how they'd been restrained by social pressures mm -hmm. and so on and so forth uh, and um, in the early 90s I and a number of group a group of artists in London set up a group the male identity group because a couple of us realized that we were interested in seeing how we might look at how we've been conditioned as little boys in the same way as 
feminists and the women movement mm -hmm. has said when I was born a girl there were these pressures that were put right. on me. We were looking for some sort yeah. of smart theory that that wasn't pro-women, anti-men, but had was inclusive. About and the relationship of the genders rather than... About the relationship yeah. of the genders. I was looking for some sort of useful approach mm. to, you know, uh, masculinity and being a man that somehow built on feminism. I mean, there were a lot of men who were going in a completely opposite direction and said, this is the end of civilization as we know it if mothers are going to go out to work. That would have so, been a very different conversation between us. But it seemed to be one of the most the healthy responses to mm. that rather than the reaction of this is the women's movement. We've got to stop. We've got to put the clock back. Yeah. So I brought that. I suddenly realized when I was in my studio, I was sort of, wandering around doing different bits of painting a bit like I'd been as a student I suddenly read hey mm. I could use my art to make images that uh, explored these ideas mm -hmm. so in in your article I think what you seem to have identified um so early in the 1990s is what we now sort of refer to as toxic masculinity as it were um I think I want to kind of talk about some of those issues because Although we see toxic masculinity as a bad thing now, um, you kind of recognise it more as something that was imposed upon young boys from a young age and, and almost kind of mirrors the same um, social constraints that women have found themselves in too. And I think that's really interesting. So I, I kind of want to touch upon a few of the, a few of the identifying um, structures that you find you've found to be oppressive or that, that your article kind of talked about. What was good about the uh, this men's agenda was that there was a way in which we said well there seemed to be very positive things about the social mm -hmm. uh, and conditioning we've had yeah and there are some negative things yeah. which we need to look at which means that we're not being good to ourselves and we're not helping women and right. it's causing strife and, yes. and the men who'd gone away and, and, and sort of sorted out came out with some positive things about men, the way boys are conditioned. Mm -hmm. And, you know, things like taking risks in the physical world, throwing yourselves around. I saw yesterday mm -hmm. in, in the street boys of 12 bored out of their mind on a Saturday evening, just rushing up and down on their bikes. Yeah, yeah. And also I think boys... One of the good things we got was we're given responsibility to look after ourselves. Mm -hmm. Not so worried as parents that your boys yeah. come back late. And you, it's not so bad if you make your clothes dirty. Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, and not all these are true for all men, but there was a sense in which, mm -hmm. if you look generally, people were discussing it, yeah. we were allowed to get angry. Show anger. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's he's going to be a good. He's a manly leader. man. He's yeah, a, yeah. He's boy. assertive. Yeah. And they will laugh about the anger of boys, mm -hmm. whereas the anger of girls would say, "Well, it's going to be a problem." Unattractive, or it's unattractive. Yeah, you yeah. hit the nail on the head. Encouraged to be confident. Yes. You know, you can do this. Go into that interview and tell them you can do that. You know, and even if you can't, you can find it in the library right. or somewhere. Right, right, right. And that's something even tricks. now in work, you know, I, I, sorry, I don't mean to sidetrack, but that's even now in, in work placement. They say that the kind of men sort of assume that the position should be yeah. theirs, whereas women kind of go in with a lack of confidence, self-esteem and sort of 
question like oh I wonder if I can get this whereas men are often yes. I deserve and this sort of absolutely. thing absolutely and, and I noticed in my parents that my dad who actually wasn't very confident in the outside world mm. would uh, and my mother who was very competent mm. but lacked confidence right right he, she, he uh, would yeah. say oh you can do this the, all these positive things, I think, have downsides. Right. So yeah. women's expertise in dealing with children, mm -hmm. okay, it's socially uh, conditioned, if you like, mm. but it can also mean that, well, you, you, in that case, you better look after the children. Right. You know, all these positive yeah. So it seemed to me um, that once we'd done the positive, we could start to think of some of the ways that we were hurt and some of the ways which, as we were hurt, we started to take it out of women and men of a certain type and children. Yeah. And yeah. I think the key thing that was seen amongst the men's group was that the way that there was a tendency in us to disconnect boys from their feelings more consistently than mm. girls as little babies and toddlers yes. and that boys could be told they were crying too much. I was told by my older brother, you must stop crying every mm. day. And then the next one is there's something which I think we identified as some sort of instilled gay oppression so that we were mm. warned about, we picked up messages about showing tenderness to each other. Right, yeah, yeah. Which then, of course, eradicated any kind of ability to be... Um, tactile and to be affectionate and tactile. therefore have feet like sure. express your love and feelings for your friends yeah. and your but there was a sense in which tenderness mm. was not going to be part of our way of relating to each other mm -hmm. and then we come back to that thing another aspect that we thought was set detrimental to us in our conditioning and that mm. was the model social model we were using was um the violence that seemed to be okay to be meted out against us. Mm. I mean, boys were given six whacks on the bottom with mm. a cane. So we end up in teenagehood a bit disconnected, not only to our feelings, but we can't play with girls. That's mm. going to be a bit soppy. And we can't show too much dis uh, tenderness towards each other as, as mm. boys. Mm. And I think... Then girls come back into our lives at teenage parties. Yeah. That's where we look for our solace and our tenderness. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing is, one of the ways out is seen not only through sexual relationships mm. and romance, but also work. Mm -hmm. Throw yourself into work, which is good in many ways. Blimey, yeah, you yeah, can yeah. achieve a lot by throwing yourself into something. Yeah. But uh, it we can almost feel as though our status is how good we are, mm -hmm. our worth, if you like. And then we looked at, uh, you know, and girls can appear as sex objects, which, which makes them feel violated in mm -hmm. some sort of way. Or they play up to it, you know. How are you going to navigate it? Because that's how they have power and control sure, in the situation. Sure, yeah. And I remember a couple of women... Yeah talking and saying we very soon realised as teenage girls that we had some power. Right. And that was to right. do with what but we it, allowed it people to do or not. And but it enforces a really unhealthy um, dynamic, Absolutely I think, right. Which you talk about, which is really yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So what's yeah. the way forward? Yes. And your, and your essay had a very, um, I want to point out that it was, unlike anything else I've read, which 
flags the problems, but your manifesto gave almost it was it was giving solutions to those problems and very kind of workable solutions. Yeah. It's always tricky dislodging these mm -hmm. ways of thinking and behaving that have been embedded in you mm. under stress. So paternity leave, I think, is important for men if we want to have mm -hmm. uh, a society where men can understand uh, women's needs and women can understand yeah. men's needs. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, it, also to end gay oppression. I think that's moved on a lot. Yes. That really, it's probably Thank not goodness. where it needs to be. No. And the other way was to, to enable ourselves to support women's leadership more mm. um and um that that was a tricky one you could see the justice in that mm. but actually how to do that mm. was going you know and as students where you don't necessarily have a lot of pressure mm. you can you can have a more equal life as well it's an uncomfortable um suggestion as well when it's just so far against what you've been told your whole life is appropriate yes. and yes. it can feel unnatural and also if your identity is so heavily bound up with how much you're achieving economically and your jobs and everything like that and what your your successes are in yeah. terms of industry yeah. sure. it, to relinquish that power feels very um dangerous almost to your identity and yes. then if that's not my role anymore and, sure. we're, and we're allowing women to kind of have that role then where do I stand like that can be exactly. very unsettling which I think it, it, it's very unsettling and uh, you will come across mm. pressures and you will come across things which you've internalized mm -hmm. so you're not only be dealing with other people asking you to change yeah you're also dealing with your own internal resistance yeah again who gets up and looks after the baby at three o'clock in the morning when you've both got a meeting at work and i think it's it's nice to talk about this now it's good to talk about this now yeah because i think gender issues are back on the agenda yeah and some yeah. things have moved and some things seem to be very, very sticky. And yeah. So in terms of what you're doing at the moment, obviously that article was written in the 1990s. You've done a heck of a lot since. Yeah. Um, what are you working on at the moment? Well, one of the ideas from masculinity that I explored on a more individual, not as a sort of a group programme, was... Mm the men and the experience of war mm -hmm. and um, particularly my father and, and how all those people in 1945 came back and had to go from this fascinated, exciting, terrifying mm -hmm. to normality to normality how? get the bus in the morning yeah um, and uh, so that's and that's called The Impact of War yeah and I've, that's, that's, so that's on my website I'm halfway through that and that leads on to the other topic because uh, I, I got curious uh, a few years ago about what was going on in England with the food banks and with the, with the homelessness and seeing mm. more and more people begging in the streets. So mm. I, 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 I did some work with food banks and I'm, I'm working in a homeless mm. centre a bit, not, you know, but each week. Good for you. Uh, is... and, and I got interested in mm. depicting homelessness the people mm -hmm. uh, in a way and finding a way of mm. doing that yeah uh which gives them some dignity which uh, what i would like to do talking about um viewers reactions is to not provoke pity mm. or guilt i think there's a lot of um 
work to be done in in looking at people to enable them to open up their heart to compassion to to humanize to humanize mm -hmm. yeah and I don't know if I'll I'll be able to do it but I'll have a go mm -hmm. and and I've been amazed actually with the public I think we underestimate the public in the art world mm -hmm. we, we sort of pillory them but I you know when I put up the picture a picture called the cost of war which is up on my website mm -hmm. I was amazed the very moving reactions that it generated from people who would come up afterwards and say, that's really interesting. And yeah. I was touched by people's thoughtfulness. So that series of work is going to be hopefully in your open studios in July yeah. in Cambridge, Cambridge Open Studios. Sixth really and seventh <laughs> of July and thirteenth and fourteenth of July. Great. And uh, I'm showing um, there's about seven of us artists, designers, stonemasons, mm -hmm. and uh, carpenters, joiners, and um, that'll be really good. Um, and it's an opportunity yeah. to allow people to chat to artists mm -hmm. and those sort of things. Generally. And if you haven't been to Cambridge, so I know um, a lot of the London listeners, if you haven't been to Cambridge, you should go because it's the most beautiful city. And to see art in the most beautiful city is one of my favourite things to do. So definitely pop along. Um, where can listeners contact you if they want to find out more about you and your work and things you're doing? Absolutely. I've got a website, um, which is www.jeremymulvey.co.uk and they can contact me through the email on that. Great. Address, Perfect. Jeremy F. Mulvey at gmail.com. Amazing. Thank you so much for talking Not to me. Time, this no. has been really wonderful. Thank you. Good afternoon. You are listening to Resonance 104.4 FM. I hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoyed talking to Jeremy. He will be exhibiting with the Woodward Cheddar Lane Group at Cambridge Open Studios the first two weeks of July. And I highly recommend a visit if you are in the area. Now, that is all we've got time for this afternoon. Thank you for listening to Art Then and Now with me, Anna Gammons. For any of the images discussed on this week's show or to contact me, please do visit the Facebook site at The Art Then and Now Show. Thank you so much, Viv, for your audio engineering skills and see you next week at 3.30 on Resonance 